This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 12, Chapter 6, The Old Curiosity Shop, Part 2 I speak thus seriously of such characters with a deliberate purpose, for the frivolous characters of Dickens are taken much too frivolously. It has been quite insufficiently pointed out that all the serious moral ideas that Dickens did contrive to express, he expressed altogether through this fantastic medium, in such figures as Swiveller and the Little Servant. The warmest upholder of Dickens would not go to the solemn or sentimental passages for anything fresh or suggestive in faith or philosophy. No one would pretend that the death of Little Dombey, with its What Are the Wild Waves Singing?, told us anything new or real about death. A good Christian dying, one would imagine, not only would not know what the wild waves were saying, but would not care. No one would pretend that the repentance of old Paul Dombey throws any light on the psychology or philosophy of repentance. No doubt old Dombey, white-haired and amiable, was a great improvement on old Dombey, brown-haired and unpleasant, but in his case the softening of the heart seems to bear too close a resemblance to softening of the brain. Whether these serious passages are as bad as the critical people or as good as the sentimental people find them, at least they do not convey anything in the way of an illuminating glimpse of a bold suggestion about men's moral nature. The serious figures do not tell one anything about the human soul. The comic figures do. Take anything almost at random out of these admirable speeches of Dick Swiveller. Notice, for instance, how exquisitely Dickens has caught a certain very deep and delicate quality at the bottom of this idle kind of man. I mean that odd, impersonal sort of intellectual justice by which the frivolous fellow sees things as they are, and even himself as he is, and is above irritation. Mr. Swiveller, you remember, asks the Marchioness whether the Brass family ever talked about him. She nods her head with vivacity. Complimentary? inquired Mr. Swiveller. The motion of the little servant's head altered. But she says, continued the little servant, that you ain't to be trusted. Well, do you know, Marchioness, said Mr. Swiveller thoughtfully, many people, not exactly professional people, but tradesmen, have had the same idea. The excellent citizen from whom I ordered this beer inclined strongly to that opinion. This philosophical freedom from all resentment, this strange love of truth which seems actually to come through carelessness, is the very real piece of spiritual observation. Even among liars there are two classes, one immeasurably better than another. The honest liar is the man who tells the truth about his old lies who says on Wednesday, I told a magnificent lie, on Monday. He keeps the truth in circulation. No one version of things stagnates in him and becomes an evil secret. He does not have to live with old lies, a horrible domesticity. Mr. Swiveller may mislead the waiter about whether he has the money to pay, but he does not mislead his friend, and he does not mislead himself on the point. He is quite as well aware as any one can be of the accumulating falsity of his position of the gentleman 
who by his various debts has closed up all the streets into the strand except one and who is going to close that tonight with a pair of gloves he shuts up the street with a pair of gloves but he does not shut up his mind with a secret the traffic of truth is still kept open through his soul it is exactly in these absurd characters then that we can find a mass of psychological and ethical suggestion this cannot be found in the serious characters except indeed in some of the later experiments there is a little of such psychological and ethical suggestion in figures like gridley like jasper like bradley headstone but in these earlier books at least such as the old curiosity shop the grave or moral figures throw no light upon morals i should maintain this generalization even in the presence of that apparent exception the christmas carol with its trio of didactic ghosts charity is certainly splendid at once a luxury and a necessity but dickens is not most effective when he is preaching charity seriously he is most effective when he is preaching it uproariously when he is preaching it by means of massive personalities and vivid scenes one might say that he is best not when he is preaching his human love but when he is practicing it in his grave pages he tells us to love men but in his wild pages he creates men whom we can love by his solemnity he commands us to love our neighbors by his caricature he makes us love them there is an odd literary question which i wonder is not put more often in literature how far can an author tell a truth without seeing it himself perhaps an actual example will express my meaning i was once talking to a highly intelligent lady about thackeray's newcomes we were speaking of the character of mrs mackenzie the campaigner and in the middle of the conversation the lady leaned across to me and said in a low hoarse but emphatic voice she drank thackeray didn't know it but she drank and it is really astonishing what a shaft of white light this sheds on the campaigner on her terrible temperament on her agonized abusiveness and her almost more agonized urbanity on her clamor which is nevertheless not open or execrable on her temper which is not so much bad temper as insatiable bloodthirsty man-eating temper how far can a writer thus indicate by accident a truth of which he is himself ignorant if truth is a plan or a pattern of things that really are or in other words if truth really exists outside ourselves or in other words if truth exists at all it must be often possible for a writer to uncover a corner of it which he happens not to understand but which his reader does happen to understand the author sees only two lines the reader sees where they meet and what is the angle the author sees only an arc or fragment of a curve the reader sees the size of the circle the last thing to say about dickens and especially about books like the old curiosity shop is that they are full of these unconscious truths the careless reader may miss them the careless author almost certainly did miss them but from them can be gathered an impression of real truth to life which is for the grave critics of dickens an almost unknown benefit buried treasure here for instance is one of them out of the old curiosity shop i mean the passage in which by a blazing stroke of genius the dashing mr chuckster one of the glorious apollos of whom mr swiveller was the perpetual grand is made to entertain a hatred bordering upon frenzy for the stolid patient respectful 
and laborious kit. Now in the formal plan of the story, Mr. Chuckster is a fool, and Kit is almost a hero. At least he is a noble boy. Yet unconsciously Dickens made the idiot Chuckster say something profoundly suggestive on the subject. In speaking of Kit, Mr. Chuckster makes use of these two remarkable phrases, that Kit is meek and that he is a snob. Now Kit is really a very fresh and manly picture of a boy, firm, sane, chivalrous, reasonable, full of those three great Roman virtues which Mr. Belloc has so often celebrated, virtues and vercundia and paetas. He is a sympathetic but still a straightforward study of the best type of that most respectable of all human classes, the respectable poor. All this is true. All that Dickens utters in praise of Kit is true. Nevertheless, the awful words of Chuckster remain written on the eternal skies. Kit is meek, and Kit is a snob. His natural dignity does not include, and is partly marred by that instinctive subservience to the employing class which has been the comfortable weakness of the whole English democracy, which has prevented their making any revolution for the last two hundred years. Kit would not serve any wicked man for money, but he would serve any moderately good man, and the money would give a certain dignity and decisiveness to the goodness. All this is the English popular evil which goes along with the English popular virtues of geniality, of homeliness, tolerance, and strong humor, hope, and an enormous appetite for hand-to-mouth happiness. The scene in which Kit takes his family to the theatre is a monument of the massive qualities of old English enjoyment. If what we want is Merry England, our antiquarians ought not to revive the Maypole or the Morris dancers. They ought to revive Astley and Sadler's Wells and the old solemn circus and the old stupid pantomime and all the sawdust and all the oranges. Of all this strength and joy in the poor, Kit is a splendid and final symbol. But amid all his masculine and English virtue, he has this weak touch of meekness or acceptance of the powers that be. It is a sound touch. It is a real truth about Kit. But Dickens did not know it. Mr. Chuckster did. Dickens' stories, taken as a whole, have more artistic unity than appears at the first glance. It is the immediate impulse of a modern critic to dismiss them as mere disorderly scrapbooks with very brilliant scraps. But this is not quite so true as it looks. In one of Dickens' novels there is generally no particular unity of construction, but there is often a considerable unity of sentiment and atmosphere. Things are irrelevant, but not somehow inappropriate. The whole book is written carelessly, but the whole book is generally written in one mood. To take a rude parallel from the other arts, we may say that there is not much unity of form, but there is much unity of color. In most of the novels this can be seen. Nicholas Nickleby, as I have remarked, is full of a certain freshness, a certain light and open-air curiosity, which irradiates from the image of the young man swinging along the Yorkshire roads in the sun. Hence the comic characters with whom he falls in are comic characters in the same key. They are a band of strolling players, charlatans and poseurs. 
but too humane to be called humbugs. In the same way, the central story of Oliver Twist is sombre, and hence even its comic character is almost sombre. At least he is too ugly to be merely amusing. Mr. Bumble is in some ways a terrible grotesque. His apoplectic vision calls the fire-red cherubim's face, which added such horror to the height and stature of Chaucer's Sompreneur. In both these cases, even the riotous and absurd characters are a little touched with the tint of the whole story. But this neglected merit of Dickens can certainly be seen best in the old curiosity shop. The curiosity shop itself was a lumber of grotesque and sinister things, outlandish weapons, twisted and diabolic decorations. The comic characters in the book are all like images brought in an old curiosity shop. Quilp might be a gargoyle. He might be some sort of devilish door-knocker dropped down and crawling about the pavement. The same applies to the sinister and really terrifying stiffness of Sally Brass. She is like some old staring figure cut out of wood. Samson Brass, her brother, again is a grotesque in the same rather inhuman manner. He is especially himself when he comes in with the green shade over his eye. About all this group of bad figures in the old curiosity shop, there is a sort of diablerie. There is also within this atmosphere an extraordinary energy of irony and laughter. The scene in which Samson Brass draws up the description of Quilp, supposing him to be dead, reaches a point of fiendish fun. We will not say very bandy, Mrs. Ginnowen, he says, of his friend's legs. We will confine ourselves to bandy. He is gone, my friends, where his legs would never be called in question. They go on to the discussion of his nose, and Mrs. Ginnowip inclines to the view that it is flat. Aquiline, you hag, aquiline, cries Mr. Quilp, pushing in his head and striking his nose with his fist. There is nothing better in the whole brutal exuberance of the character than that gesture with which Quilp punches his own face with his own fist. It is indeed a perfect symbol for Quilp is always fighting himself for want of anybody else. He is energy, and energy by itself is always suicidal. He is that primordial energy which tears, and which destroys itself. The End of Section 12 The End of Chapter 6 The Old Curiosity Shop